Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Events with Benefits, a podcast especially designed to help nonprofit organizations raise more money and achieve greater success at your next fundraising event. Now, my name is Danny Hooper, and I'm a professional fundraising auctioneer. I'm based in Canada, but uh, love it when I get a chance to make my way down here to Southern California, and uh, in particular to the world headquarters of Winspire, where I'm joined here today by the Vice President of Marketing and co-host of our podcast, Ian Loth. Hey, Danny. I'm glad to have you once again, as always. And also one of the brightest ladies in the world of uh, fundraising and uh, nonprofits, and that is Renee Zhao from uh, Donation Match. Renee, how are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. Welcome back. All right. Well, let's get started. And oh my goodness, I'll tell you, have we got a guest on today's show. If you don't make a lot of time for podcasts, well, you've you've hit a good one here today as uh, we interview A.J. Steinberg. And A.J. owns a company. She's the founder of a, a company out of Los Angeles called Queen Bee Fundraising. I was absolutely amazed from start to finish. This uh, lady did not skip a beat. Uh, you're absolutely right, Danny. And what she specializes in, uh, not only putting on events, but but really how to coach and manage a team of volunteers. Uh, that Queen Bee fundraising comes from the worker bee that is you know a key part of, of any sort of beehive. And, and she herself, uh, a self-described queen bee, but she's also about empowering the rest of those queen bees out there. Um, like she said, almost 95% of the events that she works with uh, have... Uh, females or women who are in those event chair or volunteer roles, which is kind of where she got that. But uh, she has some invaluable advice that uh, that she's going to share with you here today. Lots of resources, some things in the show notes you're going to want to pay attention to. Uh, but just overall, uh, this is going to be probably one of the most useful podcasts that we've uh, had to date, uh, just because there's so much tangible, actionable uh, tips and, and tricks and advice as well. So definitely stay tuned here. I uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah, my vi- advice is... Uh if you're driving and listening to this, you might want to pull over, grab a notebook, make sure you're sitting down ready to take notes. AJ does share a couple of her little secrets that she doesn't necessarily divulge to everyone. So um, I think you're really going to want to make sure you pay attention to this one. AJ Steinberg, the founder of Queen Bee Fundraising. Well, A.J. Steinberg, we're so happy to have you with us here today on Events with Benefits, and uh, you are the founder of a very successful company called Queen Bee Fundraising. Great name. And, uh, of course, whenever you think about queen bees, you think about all the worker bees, and uh, we're going to be talking uh, in depth here during this podcast about the worker bees, which uh, are the volunteers uh, for your nonprofit or with your nonprofit. But uh, right now, as we say good morning to AJ, uh, we'll ask you a little bit about uh, your background. You started off in this business or in this space as an event planner, isn't that right? That's right. And thank you for having me, by the way. I'm excited to be on the on the podcast with you. Yes, um, I actually, before I ever was an event planner, though, I was a volunteer. Like most people who do start in event planning, they start somewhere with volunteering. So that's how I started probably 30 years ago, and I segued into having my own event planning company called Masquerade Events based in Malibu, and that was started in 1999, and my specialty was nonprofit galas. So I worked with a lot of other uh, volunteers who were very excited to be helping nonprofits as well. I imagine if you're going to be uh, in the event planning business, being in Malibu would be a pretty exciting location. Am I right? (laughs) I have to admit, we did have access to a lot of really great events and a lot of really great celebrities for those events. So I was very fortunate to be just in the right place at the right time. We're just going to do a little sidebar here very quickly. I, I mean, I'll have you share a story uh, with us. Uh, something comes to mind. I imagine at this point in your career, you could write a book or two uh, on, <laughs> on interesting events. Have you got a story you could share with us? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many stories, but a lot of the stories that are the most funny are the ones that are actually kind of naughty. But uh, some of the stories were, oh, my gosh, one of my favorite is I was working on a nonprofit gala that was outside at a large ranch that had a big swimming pool, and it was honoring Mel Gibson, and it was for his work in Malibu. And I was working with the audiovisual team, and they set us up right next to the swimming pool. And it was during the audio tech that we were doing all the lighting and the cues for the videos and whatnot. And the AV guy took a step backward to kind of get a better look at the screen, and he completely fell into the swimming pool. And you can't be running an AV board if you're soaking wet, and the event was going to be starting in a half hour, and we needed to figure out what to do. So because it's Malibu, I ran to the closest place, house, to get some dry clothes for him, and it ends up to be a place that was filled with television cameras, and they were filming The Biggest Loser. So I had to get, yet for this guy, the only clothes that were available were size XXXLLLL, but we took them, and I had to swap alcohol and food for the for the sweats for the for the clothes <laughs> but we went on and, and that happened on so that that was one of my my glitch stories from well that's from a that good one week. all right uh so you started uh, as a volunteer moved into the event planning um, uh, space and uh, what is your business today uh queen bee fundraising queen bee fundraising focuses on teaching nonprofit professionals how to put on successful nonprofit events. It takes the 20 years of event planning experience I have working with all sorts of organizations and all sorts of volunteer bases, and it teaches them the strategies and makes it really easy to follow on how they step-by-step can put on successful events. And how do you go about teaching this information? Do you actually have classes, or do you do one-on-one I consulting? I do a little bit of everything. Good question. I have a. I teach webinars with CharityHowTo.com, which give you 90-minute snippets, bites of how to do specific things for event planning. And I have a course coming out with the Charity Channel Press is now coming out with the Charity Channel courses, and I will be one of their inaugural courses. It's it's a long course. It's everything you need to know about event planning, and it's done in very understandable terms. It's broken into 12 units, each dealing with one specific event planning uh, type of thing, and it's going to be super helpful to anybody who has to put on a fundraiser. Wow. Uh, that sounds really cool. So uh, the course you say, it's a long course. How long would it take somebody to work their way through that online course you're coming out with? Well, the beauty is that you do it at your own pace because it takes, I always say, it takes nine months to, to create a baby and nine months to create an event. So since you'll be working on your event for nine months, you ostensibly could get the entire course and just as you need each unit, meaning you need to find out about auction items, that would be the auction unit. You need to find out about tribute books. That's a tribute book. If you need to know about getting sponsorships, that would be the sponsorship unit. So you could ostensibly just go unit by unit as you need that through the nine months planning or six months planning of your event. Very cool. So putting on your event planner hat, then what are some of the biggest pitfalls that you see uh, event uh, organizers or or nonprofits that want to have an event? What are some of the biggest pitfalls that they face? It's very simple. The most common reason that events fail is because people didn't do their homework right the first day they started planning. They had the wrong event for the wrong people. And that's the truth. They either miss the mark with their event choice, meaning they get a black tie gala, but they're an animal rescue and everybody just wants to be outside with their pets, 
or they didn't do the work to think about how much their supporters can afford for tickets, so they have unsold tickets. Also, marketing. If you don't make your event irresistible, which is simple and costs you nothing, that just means good marketing, which is just creativity. If you don't do that right, you're not going to have a successful sales of your tickets for an event. So choosing the right type of event, doing, you know, figuring out your goals, and doing the right marketing. You do those things right, you're golden. From my experience, one of the things that a lot of nonprofits don't understand is that the number one reason, and they've studied this inside and out, the number one reason people choose to buy a ticket to attend an event is not so much to support a particular cause, but to have fun. And unless you're creating an event that's going to be fun, it is going to be a challenge to get people to attend and support. Isn't that correct? That's interesting, Danny. Yes, on one level, and I will take it to another level. People do not specifically buy tickets because they support an organization unless they're already big supporters. People buy tickets because of two things. One is who asks them. Just like fundraising, good standard fundraising when you do appeals, people give because of who asks them. So whoever is involved in your event, when they say, hey, I'm involved in this, I'm on the committee, I'm involved in this event, their friends are the ones who are going to buy tickets, their colleagues, their families. I call that the volunteer effect. Every volunteer brings 20 people to your event, whether through donations or actual ticket sales. But you're right. If you build an amazing event, next year people come because they had a good time, right? You just said it. People have a good time. So... I think that the first thing is you have to have a really good volunteer base who will help you to sell tickets because that's key. And the next is build this awesome event where there's interesting things happening and you don't have a snooze fest, which I'm sure you've sat through some of those. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, if you really think about what would I want to do with my Saturday night or my Thursday night, you know, put yourself in their shoes. Do you want to sit through a really badly timed stage program that just drags on and on and you're bored and you're just like your eyes are rolling in your head? Of course not. So those are the two things that sell tickets. One is you have an engaged board, an engaged event committee, engaged volunteers, and you've built a great, enticing, exciting event. AJ, how important is it for nonprofits to take the long view uh, when they're planning an event? Suppose you know you're planning an inaugural event. Uh, I think it's a really important, isn't it, for them to understand that you may not hit that that home run the first year. That you need you need to build year over year. Uh, is that right? It's very it's astute. It's very true. And I'm working with a great organization right this minute as a client who is huge. I mean, they're they're a national international organization. I'm dealing with the local one, and it's an inaugural event, and they're suddenly realizing, you know what? We really wanted to be just like the Boys and Girls Club who makes $250,000 at their event, and that's what our model was being made after, but we can't do it because we don't have a track record. We can't show our sponsors that, hey, look how well we do an event or how well our sponsorships pay off. You, can't, you, know, you need to build an event, and you're right about that. You have to be realistic and set your goals realistically not just the inaugural event, but every event, too. You have to adjust as you go through. Is it realistic to expect you're going to make money in the first year? Yes. <laughs> but, but you have to understand, money means different things to different organizations. If you're a five-person organization in a small town, money could mean $10,000. If you're here in Los Angeles or Malibu and you have a 300-person event, your expectations are $100,000. But you will not make the same money the first year as you will in ensuing years. But interestingly, about ticket sales, 
ticket sales are easier the first year for an inaugural event than they are for the third year. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting, and why is that? That's because the first year, everybody can ask all their friends to come. You know, everybody that you get involved, everyone's enthused. It's the first time. It's the first time they've asked people to attend their event. You know, when somebody says, come to my event, you'll go to your friend's event, right? But maybe the third time they ask for the same event, you might go, "Mm, you know, I've been there twice. I, I really just don't have the time this year. So the third year is really that kind of tricky year. You've already had the enthusiasm from the first year of selling tickets. The second year, you were kind of riding on that enthusiasm, and everybody was still really energized. And the third year just seems to be a little harder to get your volunteers as enthused, your board as enthused. And and I wish it wasn't like that, but it just there seems to be that cadence to when you're starting from an inaugural going on. So first year, you do better than you expected. Second year, you usually do better. Third year, you have to work harder to hit your marks. That's interesting. Uh, AJ, I'm a fundraising auctioneer based in, in Canada, and I can't tell you how many events uh, I've experienced, and you as an event planner have certainly experienced this, uh, where you, uh, you have a, a good year, you show up the next year, and nothing has changed. And the third year, nothing has changed. So how important is it for organizations to be hitting that refresh button from year to year, even if they've had a successful event? Uh, you know, I've always maintained they need to hit that refresh button, shake things up. What are your thoughts on that? And, and what's the best way for organizations to go about shaking up? I mean, there's the old adage, don't break it if it's or don't fix it if it's not broken. <laughs> it's not broken. If it's not broken. Um, but in fact, you do need to be uh, shaking it up, don't you think? Oh, my gosh, Danny, you're so right. And you are correct that people are afraid to change things if it works. Also, two people get complacent or lazy. They figure, oh, everything's working fine. We really don't need to put that much mental you know, push into it. They do need to change it up because people will get bored. They start to anticipate it's going to be the same old, the same old. So there's some ways, there's two ways to do it. You can change the people working on the event or you, and or you can change the actual event. And what do I mean by that? The people working on the event, as I always like to say, get new volunteers on your event committee. Any major event that you're working on should have an event committee that you're working with. And I know that it's a hassle. People say, hey, oh, my gosh, it's so hard to find good people. Well, that's where the whole queen bee philosophy comes from, is I look at event committees as the beehive for your event. And all beehives do in the real world they only exist to make honey. And for an event, that would be money, right? Mm-hmm. So your beehive is your event committee. And your queen bee, queen bee fundraising, the queen bee is your committee, your event committee chair. That's the chairperson of your event. That's the queen bee who's the influencer who brings in, and I'm going to use a female because 95% of the people I work with on event committees are female. That's just how it is. But that queen bee is an influencer who brings her well-connected, influential friends into the event committee. And those are the people who are doing the heavy lifting. The queen bee's the influencer. She's sitting around on her thorax, just kind of waving her hand around. But the worker bees, the committee members, are the ones who really go out and solicit donations, solicit sponsorships, sell tickets. Those people, when you look at a committee, those people each bring 20 people to your event. So if you have 10 people who are really well-connected, well-to-do, and involved in your event, and they're proud of it, and they have skin in the game because they're working hard on it, they're going to get 20 people into your event. 
And so with t- with a 10-person thing, that's 200 tickets sold, 200 people who know about it at least right by just your event committee. So you can see the multiplication effect of having a volunteer event committee. Changing your queen bee at the top every couple years means you get new worker bees, meaning you're getting a bigger and bigger outreach of people to know about your event. You're bringing in fresh blood, people who are excited it's their first year on it. You want to mix it up that way and have new people. So So you maintain that your queen bee should be changed out every third year? You know what? It's third year. I would say yes, and I'll tell you why. I like to have two chair people at the top. And the reason being, and I, I, it's interesting, I've worked with some of the most established guilds there are in, in America, and lots of times they'll have one, but usually they're going to have two chairs. And the reason being is that, first of all, you double your impact. When you have a person's name at the top of your letterhead as a chair of an event, they are really going to be bringing their friends and family in with tribute books and sponsorships and ticket sales. So having two doubles your impact, but having two also lessens the work. But what I like to do is have a senior and a junior chair. So the senior chair has already been through this once. They know the ropes. The junior chair comes on board and learns from the senior chair. And the next year, the junior chair becomes the senior chair, and you bring somebody new on. So you really are constantly rotating it, but you get the benefit of somebody who's actually had experience in prior years. It's a really amazing shift in your, in your, in your event committees. But if I can go back to what you said about changing up the event, you are right. If you can add new elements to the event, change the location, or change a theme, have a thematic event, that will sell tickets for you and help to keep it fresh. What is the average lifespan of an event? Well, that's an, you know it's interesting because there are some events that are 50 years in the making. I mean, if you ha- if you look at you know the carousel ball, that's for you know, and you have other things here. Um, I like I find 10 years. I worked on one event for 10 years in Malibu that I worked from the inaugural on down, and 10 years seems to be fine. And then there seems to be you know there becomes interpersonal issues that happen anytime you have a, a group of people. I'm saying women because it's women, but people working together closely for 10 years after a while, there's just going to be entropy and people kind of disappear. So you can count on 10 years, but there are lots of schools, and I know that in Canada you must have the same thing, is that there are schools that have amazing fundraisers years after year after year, right? Mm-hmm. They've been doing this for decades. So there, I, I would say you can expect 10 years if you do it right or longer. All right, very good. So, AJ, that's a great concept, having the senior and the junior chairperson. We've talked about the queen bee. We've talked about uh, uh, some of the worker bees uh, being those influential people that are going to come in and work under the queen bee. Let's uh, get down into talking about the volunteers. And uh, mm-hmm. I would think you probably think of them as one of the greatest assets that a nonprofit organization has. Absolutely. And you know, I have three interesting facts right in front of me because these are my three favorite facts about volunteerism. First of all, in the United States, there's approximately 61.8 million volunteers, individuals, and they contribute 8 billion hours of volunteerism per year. That's pretty amazing. And that volunteerism, if you monetize it, is equal to the gross domestic product of Egypt. I think that's amazing. And more importantly... I couldn't tell you what the gross domestic product is. That's what Google's for. We don't have to know it. We just Google that stuff. But that's a fact. I mean, it's just so interesting that... Of Egypt? Why Egypt? 
because it's a, that's just saying that's the size. I mean, when they, they monetized it, they went down the list and saw who it. So it's basically it's a huge amount of, of monetization. But yeah. more importantly for events is that there's a fact that 67% of people who volunteer become supporters in a more meaningful way for a nonprofit organization down the line. That may not be tomorrow. That may not be next week. So you have to remember, if people are doing these appeals, you, you know, year after year, they send out all those mail appeals. And you, if you get a 5 a 2 to 5% return on that, that's amazing. So, wow, 67% return on treating your volunteers well? I can't imagine time better spent when you're getting such an amazing return on your investment. And seriously, volunteers, the, the psychology between, behind why people volunteer is simple. It makes them feel good, and it makes them feel they're doing something to be more in tune and in touch with their community, whether it be global or local. So you're playing into a psychological thing is that we want to make the volunteers feel, first of all, like they're important, they're VIPs, always VIPs, and that volunteers don't just get busy work, they get real work. And if they have skills and talents, say they're a graphic artist or they have background in social media, that we're matching their talents to the tasks we give them. We're not just saying, go out and solicit auction items, even though you're known for being a CPA and you could help us all with our accounting. You, know, you want to match that. And lastly is that you want to listen to them. There's, uh, I use, whenever I work, this is the tenant of some of my teaching, is I use the organization communication appreciation model. And what I mean by that is in everything I do in event planning, including managing volunteers, organization communication appreciation, that means start out before you even touch with these volunteers, you have a volunteer task matrix. You know what you need from them. You know what you need to be done. You're organized. You get all the information. You get all the data you need. You have the tasks already outlined even before you get them. That's the organization. So you're not just saying, oh, just show up and we'll find something for you to do. That's the death knell because you look like you're just a flake. The organization doesn't look like they're very organized. And you just never have really engaged volunteers. But if you look like you're really engaged and that they're important enough for you to take the time to figure out specific tasks and you're organized, then comes the communication. And that means get them the information they need in advance. Don't just say, show up and we'll find something you to do. You're going to say, here, we have a volunteer matrix, but you're also sending the information to them. You're going to be showing up on Saturday, November 3rd, and you're going to be working from 12 to 4. It's going to be outside, so bring a hat and a sweater in case it's cold or hot. We, it's on outside on grass, so please wear flat shoes. We will not have an available uh, room for your things, so please do not bring valuables. Any information that you're communicating to them tells them that you've thought everything out in advance and they're in for a very smooth running experience. That's your communication. And appreciation is thanking volunteers before, during, and after at an event. It's you're going to be thanking them as you send out the volunteer call to action. You know, you're sending out your request for volunteers. You'll be saying, we're so thankful and appreciative of the time that we know you'll be giving us. 
then during the event, you want to thank them by actually acknowledging them, either from the stage or through posters or in the green room. I always like to have a bulletin board with personalized notes from the staff that they write thanking the volunteers, and we put it on the bulletin board so that when the uh, volunteers are in that comfort room during the event, just kind of kicking back and relaxing, they see how appreciated they are by the actual organization. And then after the event, we always send follow-up thank you emails or letters, and we always invite them to participate in other things with our organization. And if we can give them a T-shirt or a goodie bag, we always send that as well afterwards. So that's it. That's wow, <laughs> organization that's... communication appreciation. Yeah, wow. We're, we're all sitting here nodding our heads to everything you're saying, and it all sounds so well and good, but how do nonprofits go about managing all of this, and what tools might you recommend um, to our listeners here for managing their volunteers? Well, you're going to laugh when I talk about tools. Um, when I started, we used spreadsheets and the reason was there were no there was no internet there was no platforms with programs to manage volunteers there was no computers for personal computers even that's how long ago I started so I always use Excel spreadsheets and in the handouts I'm going to make a note that I'm going to do a, a volunteer matrix so I will give people a volunteer matrix so they can see how they can identify tasks they need done and how to assign that to volunteers um, I also use something called a, a command center. So when you're doing an event, it's very difficult to manage volunteers. It's like herding cats. You know, they don't know where to go. They're all chatty. They don't know what's going on. So I always let them to know, let them know that when they arrive, they should check in and they should look for balloons. And I put balloons at the command center so it's easy to find from anywhere in the venue. All you have to do is look up. And then I say, your assignments are there. So I create a command center where they can go to get assignments, where they can get the schedule of events, the run of show. They can see what's happening. They can get waters and the first aid kits there. So I try and centralize. If you can centralize where the volunteers go to get their information, if you're an event planner like me, that circumvents people running up to you as you're busily trying to get something done and saying, I have a question, I have a question. If you find one place to have them go get their questions answered and they're very clearly, they know clearly that that's where all their questions will be answered, you won't have people tugging at your sleeve as you're busily trying to put out fires during the event planning phases of things. So I don't know if that answered your question. Well, it does. I think I was looking more for uh, platforms. I know there's so there are so many different choices out there. Is there a particular uh, online platform for managing volunteers that you might suggest or recommend that you've had some no, experience with? I, you know, Toby Johnson, T O B I, and her last name is Johnson, and I think it's Volunteer Pro is her her site. She specializes in things like that. I'm an event planner, so I want to make sure that I'm clear about my experience is pretty extensive with volunteers. But in terms of platforms, I am, because I have been at it so long and I kind of have my own system, I don't use different platforms right now. So, Does, um, does I that mean that you, uh, you're still using uh, spreadsheets? I mean, maybe yep. have, do, you, yep. do you use Google Docs spreadsheets instead because they're easier you to share? You can use whatever you feel comfortable. Right. Here's one of the things. When I come on board with clients, I want to create the easiest transition for them so that they're able to, in two or three years, take over the event planning and they don't even need me. I'm, I mean, I'm the, I'm the worst at business if you think about it because I try and make my clients so proficient that they won't even need an event planner in the future. So what I try to do is find an easy system for them to use where 
there is not a high learning curve and not a high capital outlay because a lot of these programs you do have to pay. And not only is there a high learning curve, but every time you have a turnover in staff, you have to relearn the system. The new person has to relearn the system. So that doesn't mean that I'm against online platforms at all. But what it means is that because I work with many small and medium-sized organizations and there is turnover, that they find it effective to have something that they can manipulate in any computer, any place easily, and people who know Excel, everybody knows Excel, can come in immediately and grasp it. That makes that makes perfect sense, AJ. And um, so you you mentioned uh, you know nonprofit volunteer matrix that uh, we're actually going to be including in the show notes uh, a link to go download that. Um, right. Can you describe a little bit what that is uh, and how you might go about <laughs> using it? Yeah, it's basically, I, I used to laugh about this. I, I, hey, I'm from California. I use visualization to visualize every single task that needs to be done at an event. So I literally close my eyes. And when people see my volunteer matrix, it will be very clear to them the type of things I'm talking about. So I know, because I've been doing this for over 20 years, I know what tasks need to be done, and I have other volunteer matrices I use. But every Every event is unique, like a snowflake, and you will have unique things to your event that need to be handled. So I think, all right, the first thing that happens at an event is you need to load the cars up with all of the auction items and all of the collateral material from the organization. Remind me, though, as I move through this, I want to tell you my little secret, my favorite secret about loading up auction items, okay? All right, you got it. Because that's, that's my favorite. All right. All right. So then... The first thing I know is we need to load things to get them to the venue. The next thing I know, and I make lists as I'm going through this, I, I type this into this, or I write it down on a piece of paper and then type it into an Excel spreadsheet. But the first thing is the loading. The next thing is what time do we arrive at the venue? When we arrive, are the tables set up or do we have to set up the tables? Do we need to pick up balloons or, or, or snacks or anything? And then the next thing would be who's going to unload the, the auction items? Who's going to unload the collateral material? The next thing is, who's going to be setting up the silent auction? Who's setting up the live auction things? Who's going to be doing the, the video check? I go through every step, every step that happens between loading the cars to get ready to go to the venue and the last final walkthrough where everything is removed from the venue. That volunteer matrix says what we need done, and then I assign an amount of people I need to do it because only one person needs to pick up balloons, but we need 10 people to set up the auction, right? And it could take a half hour to pick up the balloons, but it can take, you know, three hours to set up the silent auction. So that's all taken into advantage. And this sounds very confusing, but when you see this, it's like that aha, like uh, deep breath moment because you realize how simple it is. It really is just writing down what needs to be done and how long it's going to take. That, that's the gist of it. So when you see it, it's a, it's a, it's a deep breath, of, a sigh of relief because it's not so complicated, but it makes you feel like a superstar because you're like, God, I know exactly what everyone's doing at what time. How awesome, you know? Well, that just sounds great. Uh, you, you mentioned a I'm, – I'm very excited to see this. Uh, I have not seen it yet, but now I am uh, chomping at the bit to uh, get this delivered here. So uh, I know several people who could absolutely use this. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned the secret. You mentioned a secret for uh, loading auction items uh, that you oh, want to Oh, this revisit. is my favorite AJ secret. This is my – like, I've been doing this a long time. And, you know, when I started, I was very young, and now I feel like I'm ancient, but not so ancient. But So yeah, really it's young. a lot – 
to load up your collateral material and your auction items. We're going, we have cars, we pick them up and we lug them. And when you have those big rubberized bins, we put all the stuff in those bins, we always do, or boxes. When you're working at a hotel or a country club, you're not allowed to take those boxes and lug them through the lobbies. Not any hotels that's worth their weight in gold will let you do that. They just don't like the look of it. So they'll make you go all the way in the back, unload at the loading dock, which causes a jam at the loading dock because you have all the different cars filled with auction items. So what I have figured out in my wisdom is I have a collection of rolling suitcases. I have my rolling suitcases, and I get them from my friends, and I pack all my auction items in rolling suitcases, also my collateral items, and I tag each rolling suitcase with what's in there. So in my auction, if I have the items for entertainment, they're all in one rolling suitcase. If there's auctions for sports and memorabilia, it's in other suitcases. And you can roll those straight through the lobby. You don't have to lift or do anything. They simply roll elegantly through the lobby, and who knows if it's clothes or auction items in there. So you're allowed to do that. <laughs> that is a pretty cool idea. You know, you can get some pretty big suitcases, pretty big roller suitcases, too. I, I see some huge ones. I wonder who would even fly with this thing. But. Exactly. Well, I have some of those from way back in the day, and I never got rid of them because I have huge items that I lug as an event planner, and I can't fly with those things. They're too big for the flight things now, but they're perfect for putting vases and other stuff in. So, you know, just if you can do the rolling suitcases, it has saved so many people's backs over the years of not having to pick up and just, and when you're done with the rolling suitcases, meaning you've unloaded the things, you zip them up and you slide them under the tables because they all have tablecloths so you can't see. And when it's time to collect everything, you just slide them out and they're, they're ready to go again. Well, that's just great. That's I think that tip right there just uh, made it worth listening to this episode alone, <laughs> uh, amongst all the other uh, fabulous pieces of advice that uh, you're, you're dishing out here. So this is great. Um, you know, on that note of auction items and and your volunteer corps, uh, you know, here at Winsboro we you know provide auction items, travel experiences. Right. So so we're always talking about procurement and advice on how to go procure items, what to tell your team, where to go. What are some of your kind of biggest three piece of advice uh, for managing a procurement team specifically for auction items? Uh, My advice is do not have squads of people descend on shopping areas in your local area. You you know what I'm saying is that lots of times, especially with schools, they'll say, okay, I'm going to assign you this shopping center and you get this shopping center and you get this shopping center. Go and ask. That is the least effective way to spend your time and energies procuring items. You procure items when you are actually purchasing items or participating at a business. So if you are eating dinner at your favorite restaurant, that is the time to ask. If you are at your dry cleaner, that is the time to ask. If you're at the dog groomer picking up your dog, that is the time that you are most likely to be successful. It's when you're handing over your credit card, you ask them in in return if they would like to participate. Also, too, the wording is important. People are always saying, I hate asking for stuff. Let's erase that. Let's change the mindset. You are not asking for stuff. You are offering businesses an opportunity to participate in something meaningful in their community. I want to repeat that. You're offering an opportunity for businesses to participate in something meaningful. That is the difference between a yes and a no. And lastly is have, um, have varied items, but don't have too many items. 
I would say there's like that four to one ratio, three to one ratio is three guests to one item. Have all different levels, meaning don't just have expensive items or don't just have cheap items. You want to have something that everybody who's a guest can feel that they have the opportunity to bid on because if it's too much, then people feel kind of snubbed. Like so if there's some normal people here who can't afford a $1,000 starting bid, but you want to have those really exciting things for the high rollers who think, God, I would love to go on that trip to New Orleans, which I did a Windspire trip to New Orleans. It was the best trip ever, by the way, awesome. I have to tell you. That's great. Yeah, I was lucky enough to. I was lucky enough that someone actually bought the chip and then handed it over to me. So, <laughs> yeah, isn't that something? I know, you know? Yeah, but that's the most awesome ever. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't need to make this a plug for Winspire, but can you just talk, that's you know, uh, AJ, <laughs> about your experience with consignments? And I mean, I'm always promoting with my clients. I'm a fundraising auctioneer, so I'm always promoting with my clients to to use one or two or three consignment uh, packages, uh, you know, these travel experiences. And you've had the experience, I've had the experience, and certainly Winspire, here's where we get the pushback, and I just don't get it. But um, what are your thoughts on uh, organizing? using consignment? I think it depends on the organization. The good thing, here, here's a positive about consignment. The positive is you're going to get an experience that's well put together, well curated, meaning you know that the person who's going to go on that trip is getting a travel agent with them, first-rate not, you know, first rate experience, and you know that this is something that probably you can't pull together with your organization. You don't have the resources to get the trip to the Super Bowl or you can get the trip to Istanbul or, or Paris. You just don't have those resources. Having a, a couple of consignment things means that you know that there's going to be something that people walk away from your event and say, you know what, that was a really high-end, really you know, amazing event, look at some of those items they got. They don't know that they're consignment items, so you do need to have a list of that at the bottom of the bid sheet. Um, that's when it's great, especially for live auctions. It's very, you know, there's sometimes holes. I'm dealing right now with an event where we have a hole in our live auction. We need a really amazing thing to really draw people in. You know, there are um, the issues with the consignment, as you know, are that it's not 100% profit, but you have to weigh that with, you know, you need sometimes something just to wow people, and, and consignment items can do that. Have you ever um, had any success or tried, uh, you know, getting underwriters for consignment items or instructed your volunteer, groups of volunteers, to go try to get uh, underwriters who might not have a, a necessarily good item that they can donate, you know, such as a, a law firm, um, you know, who might not be able to donate an exciting item to, <laughs> or a to dentist under, or a dentist, right? Uh, to underwrite. Okay, the cost you of just you know what? That is a great idea. I know I haven't, and I've never thought of it, and I'm writing that down right now. Well, <laughs> I love it that is, idea. It is a great yeah, idea. You know, again, it's a being great an idea. Being an auctioneer, I see how tough it is to sell a will kit for two people, or to sell, uh, you know, estate planning uh, or a tooth whitening. You know, but if you can go to those professional firms and say, hey, why don't you underwrite a trip to the Indy 500 or maybe a trip to a shopping spree, a lady shopping spree to Las Vegas or, or I mean, a weekend, a girls weekend in Las Vegas or a shopping spree in New York. Uh, that's got lots of sex appeal. And I find that the underwriters get real excited about that. Well, yeah, and we've actually seen a lot of success with that, just with being able to recognize those donors when it comes time to the live auction. Right. You can say you can stop and say this experience was donated by, so you know, so and so. And then right. they're happy. Everyone's happy. Right. You know what? I think that's worth you putting something, maybe doing a blog post on that, because I would certainly read it. We're I trying to keep that secret, though, yet. AJ. 
Yeah. Okay, we're, sorry. We're if trying it's to keep secret, that forget it. it. I'm you have the suitcase so awesome. idea, which was your big secret, and that's our big secret. We didn't want anybody to know about that. Okay, well, it's an awesome secret. It's as awesome as the rolling suitcases. Uh, t- yeah, we're getting we're getting a little pressed for time here. I tell you, we could talk to you for days. You've got so much valuable information. Uh, I had a quick question here about job descriptions, uh, providing job descriptions for the various volunteers on the different mm-hmm. committees. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's very important. First of all, I will. Part of my handouts is I have a committee uh, task outline which is for each committee, exactly what each committee will be responsible for. So I will have that as a handout. And in terms of writing job descriptions, there's two different kinds of volunteers. There's the event committee volunteers. And I like event committees to be broken up into different tasks, meaning some people are in charge, not the only people doing this, the auction procurement, but they're in charge of the auction, meaning they're, they're the, the point person, and then another person is the point person for the tribute book, and another person is the point person for the invitation. So that's what the committee task outline talks about. In terms of job descriptions, um, for the typical event volunteer, they're doing somewhat busy work. You know, they're, they're putting auction items on the table, they're stuffing goodie bags, you need to be very clear and write out descriptions of what everyone should do and if they need a sample, meaning if you're putting together a goodie bag, have a sample of a put-together goodie bag with a list of what goes in it so they're not just guessing how you want them done. So be very specific, write everything down, have everything at the command center, all the samples and all of the job descriptions to make it easy for people to understand what they're supposed to do. If you make it easy for anybody, meaning make it easy for people to make donations to the auction, make it easy for volunteers to get there and to participate, your success rate for your entire event will be so much better. AJ, I imagine we have a lot of listeners right now, a lot of nonprofits out there saying, I want to work with this lady. And <laughs> can, you, can you work with clients remotely? Um, you know, if somebody, I mean, obviously, if, say, somebody from Canada or the East Coast wanted to work with you, it's difficult for you to be on site for all those events. Can you work remotely with clients? Absolutely. I do it through, uh, it's either monthly or bi-week or every two weeks, phone calls, and we go over all the issues that they're having, and then I puzzle it out with them and we work it out very good well on that note uh, how would people go about uh, contacting you you can get a hold of me through my website which is queenbeefundraising.com queen b one word <laughs> queenbeefundraising.com and you can reach me at i always answer my own emails which is aj at queenbeefundraising.com now do you hold workshops for other uh, not just nonprofits, but do you hold workshops for other event planners uh, that's underway. Yes, I do. I have that in the works right now. As I said, I'm, this course that's so comprehensive. It is about 24 hours worth of of videos. It's all videos and handouts and worksheets. That is geared towards nonprofit, but we're doing a breakout that will be for event planners who want to learn because it's a very different bird. And a, a nonprofit event is so different than a social event, and you want to make sure that you understand the tenets of fundraising and nonprofits and goals for nonprofits if you're just a regular event planner. So we have that. But that's a good question. Thank you for asking that. AJ, I'm going to regress here just for a moment and wanted to talk about, uh, I think one of the issues that a lot of nonprofits have is that they tend to be overly dependent on 
past givers, their past mm-hmm. supporters, their past big supporters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they think, oh, if we get the Smiths here, we get, you know, this particular couple, that particular couple of philanthropists, we'll be just fine. But in fact, I think my experience is we're going through a real transition out there right now where a lot of folks from that generation have done their giving. They're not as active anymore in going to the galas and whatnot. How does a fundraising organization keep their sights on recruiting new supporters to their events? That's a really good question, and I agree with you 100% about your insight on that. There is a shift. We have an aging population that was very active in the philanthropic world, and now it's shifting towards people in their 40s and 50s who perhaps were too busy with you know raising families or whatever, or their parents were the givers, and now it's coming to them. So once again, when you expand the people, the number of people that you engage in your event that have skin in the game, think about it. If you're the person who helped do some portion of this event to, to put it together, whether you made a sponsorship or you came and you helped uh, envelopes or put together invitations, if you have skin in the game, you're more likely to show up. If you're showing up, then you're more likely to bring your friends to show up who probably don't have a relationship at all with the organization. You need to really encourage the people who are working with you at the organization to bring your friends in, to bring them to the event, because your event, it's not just you're trying to raise money. This is your rare opportunity to have 300 sets of eyes and ears listening and watching your every move on stage and hearing. Don't forget, this is an opportunity to promote your organization, to let people know what you're doing, to have a call to action. That is huge. So the people in the or in sitting there who have bought tickets because they just know someone, they're for the first time getting a feel of the excitement and the dedication your organization has towards their mission. So that is the best way to bring in new people is to get them in the seat and get their attention and let them see how meaningful your organization is. Um, I think that's the only way. You have to engage people one-on-one, not one-on-one. That's a big group. But you have to physically get them there. You have to hold events at your – if you have a brick-and-mortar, if you have a transitional housing program, have a Mother's Day event where you encourage uh, teenagers to come with their moms and to help people who are, you know, families who are in transition, you know, during Mother's Day. Do something meaningful where people get their hands on it because if people do something – they are so much more likely to become meaningful donors and supporters than if you just send them a piece of paper and they haven't physically helped you with something. AJ, we always talk about the three essentials of a successful fundraising auction event, and and we say that's you need to entertain your audience, you need to engage them, and you need to extract the money. What might your best advice be on how nonprofits can go about doing those three essentials, entertain, engage, and extract? Entertain would be, well, I'm, I love events that have, like, value-added things where, you know, where you have, we're having one where we're having an essential oil bar and aroma bar for the women and the cigar bar for the guys. You want to do something that's fun. If you're an animal rescue, bring the animals in. in that's the entertain. It, have fun entertainment, but that shouldn't be the focal point until you're done with your stage program. So that's entertain. Engage is making your program meaningful. When you cannot extract till you engage. Are we agreeing on that one? Absolutely. Okay. So engagement means you have a story to tell. 
don't just get up and say, we're doing great stories. Okay, I'm going to get into, this is Fundraising 101. When you get up, do not talk about all the good work you are doing. Get up and talk about the great work that they are doing. Sitting in the audience, those donors, it's the donors who are doing the good work. In your story, choose one person and take the, take the guests on a journey of how one person's life has been transformed by the organization's mission. And make sure that people, it's them that did it, not you who are sitting behind a desk and helping it. We, we know that. But those donors, by their participation and support, they're the ones who took that girl out of poverty and gave her a skill so then now she can support her family. Engage them in a story. Take them on. A good storytelling is you introduce a character and make people care about it. The second phase is you get that character in trouble. Uh-oh, there's no hope. The third phase is they're rescued, but there's still more to do. That's the three phases. So you need to do that as you tell your story through your talk about your organization, through your fund-a-need. And the fund-a-need is a climax, and then you extract. All right. I was hoping you were going to say hire a professional fundraising auctioneer, but you didn't go okay. there. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. Okay, but I want to say this because I teach a lot of people a lot about nonprofit events. I have so many places in my things that says, if you want to succeed, hire an excellent professional. And I think not just a professional auctioneer, an excellent pro- auctioneer. Because you're obviously really together and with it and have this amazing voice. So you want someone like a Danny to come to your event. He, a professional auctioneer will pay for themselves probably ten times over. At least you are leaving money on the table if you do not do it because you will lose your audience. They'll be bored. They won't buy tickets next year. And you'll never maximize your live auction. And you will get so much less for your fund to need or your appeal from the stage. So absolutely 100% it's important to have a professional leading leading the way with that. All right. Well, it wasn't me that said it. <laughs> no, I well, mean thanks, it. You, I mean, I tell I'm you, serious. You, you have been such a delight to talk to. Now, we've got some, um, some uh, other materials, um, uh, handouts, and uh, we're going to have that matrix and some all kinds of things that you'll, if our listeners will be able to get in the show notes. Um, anything else you would like to um, share with us before we uh, turn you loose here, AJ? We know you're very, very busy and uh, you want to get back to work. <laughs> always work but yes no it's great I appreciate the opportunity but I do want to say that if anybody is putting on an event and they feel that they want to do it right that this course with Charity Channel uh, Press is now coming out with Charity Channel courses it's coming out I'll have a link on a lead page for you and it really it's all you need to know it will make you tens of thousands of dollars more at your event just because you'll be doing it right and and as people like Danny will tell you is that there's nothing worse than spending all the time and energy on an event and you just have a flop because you missed some of those key items that you could do. But well, and the biggest the biggest misstep sometimes is that these events expect everything for nothing. You know, a lot of them. You know, the first advice we give our clients all the time is stop thinking like a charity, start thinking like a business. And if you have to spend ten dollars to make a thousand dollars. You know, you got to be thinking in terms of ROI. So uh, I know mm-hmm. personally we'll be directing a lot of business your way, AJ. It sounds uh, really interesting, this uh, this course that you're creating, this online course. And I, and it just makes it better for everybody in the nonprofit space. If we're all better educated, we're all following best practices. And people like you have been around long enough. You know what works, what doesn't work. It's valuable information. And uh, we thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us here today on Events with Benefits uh, this without a doubt, has been one of our best. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the show this week. For show notes, special offers, or to listen to previous episodes, you can visit us at eventswithbenefits.com. Please also consider subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. And if you enjoyed the show, do us a favor and write us a review while you're there. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at hosts at eventswithbenefits.com. We'll see you next time. <music>